Why, hello, how are you? It's good. Uh, I want to say a welcome to those of you joining us at all the campuses as well. We are going to be in John chapter 6. You would know that because we've been in a series. Uh, but before we dive into that, I get to take a few minutes to talk to you about some new stuff that you may or you may not have noticed as you came into the services this weekend at all the campuses. You might have noticed some signs on the walls. You might have seen some people wearing T-shirts, uh, some new logos, those kind of things. And so that's what I get to talk about. And you're like, so what's that about? So if you have been around and if you have been listening, which I don't assume that those two always go together, but if you've been here and if you have been listening over the last six, eight months, you will have heard us talk about the fact, well, Northview is 42 years old. We have four decades of history, uh, a lot of joys and ups and downs in those 40 years, but uh, we're still here, we're still alive, we're still growing. And we've been asking the Lord the question, what do the next days of ministry look like? Uh, so uh, about a year ago now, in the early spring, we took an intensive week where we really dug in deep and we were looking back saying, who is it that God has shaped us to be? And what is the vision and the mission for the church moving forward? And so we've freshened up some of the looks so organizations go through various refreshes. So if you look at this slide on the screen, you'll see over the years, Northview's had a number of different logos over the years, number of different looks about every 10 or 15 years, there's a new one that's come on. And so it's time that we do a little bit of that refresh. And in that week together, we landed on this phrase that we exist to help people become deeply rooted followers of Jesus. That simple statement. That's why we're here, to help people become deeply rooted followers of Jesus. Now, we, we got to be really clear, and I've said this many times, the mission of the church actually has not changed, never changes, will not change, because it's not our mission, it's actually Jesus' mission. And Jesus gave us the mission 2,000 years ago, and so every Bible-believing church in the world actually has the exact same mission. You go to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples until I return, Jesus said. So really, the mission is the same, but every church words it a little bit differently. And so we've wordsmithed it around this idea of deeply rooted disciples, followers of Jesus. And that, that whole phrase, deeply rooted, that tagline, we think is both an accurate re reflection of who we have been as a church, but also who we want to be in uh, the, the days ahead of us. We also know that it is a deeply biblical metaphor. Uh, and I've mentioned this in uh, sermons over the last six, eight months, how there are so many passages that talk about our Christian life like a tree, uh, that uh, the person of God is like a tree planted by the waters, and you get your roots down deep, and you're getting roots down deep, deeply rooted uh, into two things. So it's not deeply rooted uh, just for the sake of having deep roots, but a tree planted by the water, deep into God's word, deep into Christian community, unto what end? Deep roots that we might have abundant fruit, and deep roots that we might have resiliency against the storms and the winds of life. Both those metaphors work, and they're both biblical, that when the storm blows up against your life, and when the times are hard, and whether it's something in your own personal life or something cultural that comes up against us, the storms of life blow, and if you've got deep roots, they hold and you're anchored. And then the other analogy is deep roots lead, of course, to abundant fruit. And in the scriptures, fruit is talked about at least in three different ways. Uh, the fruits of salvation, the fruits of the gospel, that men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we want to see abundant fruit in that way. It's also the fruit of good works, and not that we're working to earn our salvation, but our good works actually shine a light out into the community. Jesus said, they'll see your good works, and they'll glorify your Father in heaven. So the fruit of good works. And then ultimately, and the biggest one, is the fruit of the Spirit, 
that the longer you walk with Jesus and the more you mature with him, that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, you become more and more like Jesus. You become sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and sweeter as the years go by. Amen? Uh, I know a lot of cranky old Christians and they haven't read Galatians 5. They need to read it. So three simple steps in the process, gather, grow, and go. Like we've talked a lot about this. You've heard us talk about it. We gather together. We gather in large groups, uh, weekend services. We gather in small groups for Bible study and in our homes for community groups. But we need to be together. Hebrews 13 says, don't forsake the gathering of the saints. We need one another. We need Christians in our life. Uh, we want to grow. Uh, it's not just growing in knowledge, but growing in obedience. We want to become more like Jesus. And then ultimately, we also want to go back out into the world. We know that God hasn't left us here just for our sake, but that we would go back out uh, in the 24-7s. And I've said to this you often, I think the most important part of our Christian life is not what we do in our weekend services, but what, it's we, what we do in our 24-7s. So we gather in our weekend services, we gather in Bible studies, we gather in care groups so that we can go out into the schools and the neighborhoods and the workplaces and into our families. That's where ministry is done. Uh, the Fraser Valley is not going to be changed because we had another church service. But the Fraser Valley might be changed if we send out an army of people 24-7 living on mission in the coffee shops and the mechanic shops and the manufacturing places and businesses and farms, etc. You get it, Right? Just say an amen, and I know you're with me. Great. So, all of that to say, we've done a refresh. Uh, I like the new N, so you see that statement there. Look, do you see the, uh, the little rings of the tree in the N? Do you see that? Yeah. So as you look at our Christian life, we continue to grow. So anyway, we wanted to throw that out there. We've got t-shirts, we've got mugs, we've got lots of bling. You can't get them right now, but I've told that in the future, you might actually be able to get one of those beautiful t-shirts for yourself. And I also do want to say a big thanks uh, to two men in particular, Adam Wormold and Dakota Thiessen, our comms team, graphics team. They have spent like probably 100 hours or more in this project. So can you just say thank you to them for all the work that they've done on that? It's great. Okay. Uh, let me pray, and then we're going to jump in. So Jesus, uh, I pray by your spirit, you know what you want to say to us this weekend. And I thank you for the men and women, boys and girls who are gathered um, at Central Abbey right now and in East Abbotsford and in the Mission Campus and those who are here at Downs. Lord, you know our needs. You know the people who will hear this message this weekend. And we just confess again, Lord, make your word live to us because other than that, they're just words on paper. And so, Father, you know every need represented in our congregation. You know exactly what people need to hear from your spirit. And I'm praying, Lord, that by your spirit, you would speak to us from this really practical text in John 6. Uh, so, Lord, move in our, our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are in John 6. And I'll just tell you a little bit about uh, some of our family details that I married into a family uh, of bread makers and bread lovers. And you might roll your eyes and say, well, didn't we all? Because bread is sort of the staple of life. But I am talking about bread making and bread baking and thinking and language on steroids. So let me tell you that long, long ago in a land far, far away, 
long before there were supermarkets where everything was under one roof and you had every department available there, back in the days when you had to go to the butcher to get meat and you had to go to the green grocer for your veggies and fruit and you went to the dry goods store for miscellaneous others and you would get your milk and eggs from a dairy somewhere and back in the day when milk and eggs and bread were literally delivered to your doorstep in a wagon by horse a couple times of the week in a land far, far away called Hamilton, Ontario. There was a small baking empire called Beckett's Better Bread. Back at the last turn of the century, owned and operated by Carolyn's great-grandfather. And in the wee hours of the morning, when the rest of the city was asleep, the bakers would show up and start mixing the staple of life, bread, and then it would go out in the wagons and it would be delivered. So as newlyweds, Carolyn and I are in Ontario visiting and I get the chance to visit with her grandfather who's now in his 80s, the son of the great-grandfather, and him talking about his earliest childhood memories as a little kid, maybe even three and four years old, but certainly not more than five, sitting on the counter in the bakery and peeling off foil stickers and dropping one sticker in the bottom of every baking pan before the bread dough plopped in on top and that sticker was baked into the bottom of the loaf. So that as the bread is delivered and they're slicing it, they like it, they can turn it over and they go, oh, this is Beckett's bread. And then later, being able to travel along on occasion with the, the buggy drivers as they're delivering bread. And not only they, did they deliver bread, but they sold bread. They had to drum up customers. And in order to keep your job in that company in that day, you had to deliver a minimum of 1,000 loaves a day. And at the peak of this little empire, they had 14 wagons on the road. So you can imagine how much flour every day was going into minimally 14,000 loaves of bread. So grandpa was retired at that point in time and he was famous for his experiments with bread. He was always playing with uh, fruit, flours and grains and different liquids and oils and butters and water and milk and different mixes and then throwing in special spices and fruits and nuts. And so there would be salty or sweet or savory breads of all types. He was famous for trying different pots and pans to see how the heat distributes. Uh, he once cooked bread in a flower pot. Uh, once in a coffee tin. Uh, on the barbecue outside. Let's see how bread on the barbecue tastes. Well, Carolyn's dad is now in his 80s. And at least two or three times a year, we will get a photo on the phone from dad and some new bread experiment that he's come up with. And then my good wife, generation number four, has inherited those family genes. And if our kids were here, they would tell you that on a regular basis growing up, our house smelled like fresh baked bread of all shapes and sizes and kind, and it still does to this day. And if I die at 300 pounds, you will know why. <laughs> so our text today is all about bread. John chapter 6 is about bread, the most basic food in the world, that every culture has some kind of thing that they call bread made from starch, some grain or some root or some plant that they take and they pound it or they grind it, and then they bake it or they boil it or they roast it or they fry it, but some form of a staple called bread that gets thrown on the table at probably every meal, morning, noon, and night. The Indians call it naan. The Greeks have pitas. The Italians have focaccio. The French have their baguettes. The Germans have their zwieback. And down in the USA, there's this horrible thing that's called wonder bread that is not bread. 
It is not bread because it has a six month shelf life. Go buy a loaf today, put it in the back of the cupboard and pull it out in the summer and you'll realize it's white and fluffy and soft. It cannot be bread. So John 6 is probably the best known miracle of Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000. It's the fourth miracle in the book of John and it's the only miracle that all four gospels record, which is interesting. And in John 6, we hear Jesus saying these famous words, I am the bread of life. And it's the first of seven I am statements in John's gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door or the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. You are the branches. So these seven I am statements of Jesus, they're metaphors. This is the first one in John chapter six. I am the bread of life. And so they're metaphors, obviously, that point us to a greater reality. It's a word picture to get us to think about a spiritual reality that we see in Jesus. So in John 6, 35, later in the chapter, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He has just said a couple verses earlier, my father gives you true bread from heaven. And a couple verses later, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So really, really clear, really easy, really simple. You want the Coles notes on John chapter six, it's this, you need bread. My father sent bread and I am that bread. That's the simple message of John chapter six, that there is only one who can satisfy us, who can fill us, the deepest hunger of our soul. So John six is like John five in that it opens with a story and then it goes into a theological discussion. So we took John five in two weeks and we told the story of the healing of the lame man and then unpacked the theological declaration of Jesus that I and the father are one. John six is the same. We get a story, the feeding of the 5,000, and then we get an explanation. So we're gonna take it in two weeks, uh, maybe even three weeks, because it's a long chunk, it's 71 verses. So this weekend is the first half. And at the core, it is a deeply personal and relevant truth. What, what's interesting is you get to the theological unpacking, the people didn't get it, so much so that at the end of this chapter, you see people literally walking away from Jesus. They're saying, this teaching is too hard, I don't understand it, I'm fed up with this, and they walk away. Uh, so you could call the text, honey, I shrunk the church. That's sort of what the text is about. But these two applications in this text, two ways that we need to obey this text, that Jesus is our eternal bread and that Jesus is our daily bread. He's our eternal bread, but he's also our daily bread. So like bread that every culture has in some form, Jesus fills our soul. And what I wanna convince you of is this basic truth, and I'm gonna frame it this way, that when the cupboards are empty, God is good, and he can be trusted, and he will supply all your needs. When the cupboards are empty, we're going to come around to it at the end. We could also say, when the cupboards are full, God is good. He can be trusted, and he will supply all your needs. So we're going to do what we always do. We're going to run through the text. We're going to take a look at it, explain a little bit, and then we're going to try to apply it. So John 6, the first four verses go like this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, 
the feast of the Jews was at hand. So it's just setting up the context for this miracle. After that, after what? Well, obviously, chapter five, we looked at that last week. Jesus in Jerusalem, healing on the Sabbath, I and the Father are one. But there are some timestamps that help us out here. So you'll remember in John 5, there was a feast happening in Jerusalem, and we talked about it that we didn't know which feast it was. John 6, it's the feast of Passover. So Passover is now happening. If John 5 was another Passover, then it's been a whole 12-month period. A whole year has gone by. If the feast in John 5 is maybe Feast of Tabernacles, then maybe it's six months. But nevertheless, six to 12 months have passed in the the break between chapter 5 and chapter 6 in our Bible, 6 to 12 months have gone by. And in between, a lot of ministry has been happening. And if you lay aside the four Gospels, one alongside each other, and people have done this, you can buy a book, uh, you can Google it, you can, uh, on your Bible software program, you have these things called Harmonies of the Gospels where it takes all four Gospels and lines them up in a chronological order. If you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and go, how do you connect the dots on the order of events? And it's not perfect because they all share from their perspective, but you can get a little bit of the chronology. So if we compare the four, we know some things have happened in between these two chapters. We know for sure that the crowds are beginning to pursue Jesus in a major way. So much so that Mark chapter 6 says he and the disciples couldn't even take time to eat a meal. They were so pressed in by the crowds. So his reputation is growing. But more importantly, there are two significant events that we know for sure have happened. Number one is that John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod. He has been imprisoned and he has been beheaded. That happens between John 5 and 6. It's recorded in other Gospels. And Jesus is grieving the death of his cousin and the death of his forerunner, John the Baptist. Other texts say John the Baptist died, and he's like, let's get up to the mountainside. We also know that Jesus has sent out the disciples on their first journey of their own, where he sent them out two by two, and he said, go out and preach the gospel and heal the sick and pray for people, and don't bother about taking along food or money or even a sleeping bag. Just take your care from the people that you're ministering to. And they had come back, and they're talking about all the stuff that happened in that first ministry period. And we also know that Herod finds out about all these miracles. So in Luke 9, it says, Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is it about whom I'm hearing such things? And he sought to see him. So Herod now is going, hey, John the Baptist is dead. Has he been raised from the dead? Who is this miracle worker? So now Herod, this political leader, is now actively looking for Jesus. Now you're like, is this important? Is this just you studied too much this week or not enough, whatever? Is it important? Well, in the big scheme of things, maybe not because it doesn't affect the main teaching of the text. But all of these details help us get inside the story and what's going on in John chapter 6. And what we know as we read the Gospels is that there were at least four distinct times. If you're taking notes or you're journaling or circling in those things, there's four distinct times where Jesus says to his disciples, let's get away from here. On four unique occasions. Let's get up to the hillside three times and let's go over to the coast one time. I'm tired of these crowds. I'm tired of these people. I'm tired of Herod chasing me around. I'm tired of the Pharisees. Uh, we need to rest. We need to debrief. I've got some teaching I need to do with you. Let's get out of town. Let's go on a retreat center. The valley's hot. The hillsides are warm. I mean, we do this today, right? It's like, you know what? I just got to get out of town. Like a day up in Manning Park or the Okanagan or 
the shoe swap or Whistler or worst case, I'll go south of the border, but I just got to get out of town. Like, right? We do this. Not, you do this. Thank you. Someone's alive. Here in John 6, Jesus is two things. He's tired of the crowds. John doesn't say that, but Mark says it. And he's grieving John the Baptist's death. Matthew says that. So he's like, boys, the weather's good up in the Golan Heights. Let's get up there. So the next few verses, verse five to nine. Lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we gonna buy bread so that these people can eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Let's steal his lunch. (laughs) But what are they for so many? Now, John just simply says he looks at the crowd. So thankfully, it's recorded three other times, four times in total. And the other gospels give us a little more detail. It says he actually looked on the crowd and he had compassion on the crowd. His heart was moved toward them. It were also told that they didn't, the crowd didn't just show up and he decided to feed them. He's teaching all day long and he's healing the sick. And so much so that the day had dragged along and it had gotten toward evening. So it gets dark at about 6 p.m. So it's after late afternoon, probably four, maybe towards five. It's getting towards dusk. The evening is coming. They've been there all day. They haven't eaten. And the disciples are like, you know what? We got to send these people away. They need to go find a place to stay and they need to get some food to eat. And then Jesus is like, why don't you feed them? So Matthew records it. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowd away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. So he says it in a little different way than John records it when John's like, how can uh, Jesus, where are we going to buy bread so that these people can eat as a question to Philip? And Philip, sarcastically, I think, or jokingly is like, that's a good one, Jesus. Sure, we're going to feed him, right? And then he goes on to say, honestly, like, you're not serious, Jesus, right? Because even if we had 200 days worth of salary, so two-thirds of a year's work worth of salary, do the math on that, and we bought all the bread we could buy with that, even that wouldn't be enough to give every person even just a bite. You're obviously joking, Jesus, because this is an impossible task. Even if we had the money, there's no bakery close by. So it's impossible. And I think Jesus in his mind in that moment was thinking exactly, Philip, exactly. I want you to recognize the impossibility of this moment because in this moment of impossibility, I'm going to show myself powerful. So John 6, 10 to 14. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. He was a good Mennonite. (laughs) They gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments 
from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Have him sit down, bring me that kid's lunch. 5,000 men and other gospels say there were women and children there as well. So commentators vary in their opinions. How many people? Were there 5,000 women as well? Was it an equal number of women? And were there another five or 10,000 children? But minimally, there were 5,000 men plus women and kids. So you figure it out. We're not told. Probably doesn't matter. A lot of people. And 12 basketfuls were left over. In other words, every disciple got a little basket to remind him of this miracle filled with the leftovers. And then John goes on and he tells just a, another little story of that same day. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they'd rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, Jesus' other texts say he sent them away. This text says they went away. He also sends the crowd away. Where they went, we're not told. He goes up the mountain to pray. And in the darkness of night, he walks out across that stormy sea and he comes walking to that boat on the water and other texts will tell us Peter gets out of the boat and walks with Jesus. And I'm not gonna spend any time here because it's not the main focus of the chapter, but I think the point that Jesus is making is you've just seen me multiply bread and now you see me walking on the water and the lesson is clear, nothing is impossible for me. So you can put your trust in me. Now, John 6, 22 and following, so right to the end of the chapter, verse 71, is the explanation. So the next day they get to the other side of the lake. The crowds have followed him there. They're like, Jesus, how did you get here? And wasn't that a great miracle and all of that? And Jesus begins to unpack, and that's actually next weekend's text. And there's no question that the primary message, the main message, the main point of John chapter 6 is next week. It is the spiritual metaphor that I am the bread of life. It's the theological underpinnings for this passage. But the first 14 verses are also important because what we see Jesus doing in these first 14 verses is meeting the most basic need of human life, food for hungry people. When you don't have bread, I will be your supply. When the cupboards are empty, I am still good, and you can trust me. Now, as we read on in the text, you will see, I'll just mention a little bit now and more next week probably, that the crowds actually didn't get it. They didn't understand it. And the disciples didn't get it, didn't understand it. When the people come to him, and he starts talking the next day, if you look at your Bibles and you look at verse 2, verse 14, verse 26 and verse 30, all four of those verses you see and hear them talking about the signs. So they followed him, verse two, because of the signs that they seen. So Jesus was working miracles. He had healed the sick. He had cast out demons and the crowds were growing because they saw the signs. Now back in chapter two, same thing. The crowds were following him because of the signs and yet Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to the crowd. Do you remember that? 
because he knew the fickleness of their heart. He knew that they were only there for the show. They were only there for the ex, you know, these unexplainable things that Jesus was doing. And then you get down to verse 14, and they saw the sign of the bread. But you get to verse 26 tomorrow or the next day, and Jesus says to them, you didn't come to me for the sign. And you're like, wait a minute, exactly we came for the sign. You saw the sign, but you didn't see. It's this idea, you were seeing, but you're not seeing. You're missing the point. You saw the bread, you've seen the miracles, but you're not seeing through them to the main point. And then they go on to say, well, then show us something else. Do another sign, Jesus, and then we'll really believe. So do you remember a few weeks ago when I said, do the roar? That's what they're doing here again. They're like, okay, Jesus, then just do one more miracle. Like maybe we didn't understand it up till now, but if you just give us another sign, just show us one more thing and then we'll ultimately believe. They didn't get it. We also know, however, and I think significantly, that the disciples didn't get it either. And you're like, well, how do you know that? Well, it's not in our text, but it is in another text. Because later, probably months later, Matthew 16 and Mark 8 both record the story where Jesus basically says to him, do you not remember the bread? So they're out in a boat again, and somebody realizes they've only got one loaf of bread and they start arguing amongst themselves. They're like, who forgot to go to the bakery? Arguing and fussing. Like, Peter, it was your job, right? Nope, not my job. Andrew, my job. Nope, not mine. Thomas, I doubt it. No. And Jesus jumps into the middle of it, and he is like, why are you nattering on about bread? Like, Jesus is frustrated in this story. And Jesus is like, do you not yet get it? How long have I been with you guys? Were you not there when I fed 5,000 people? And between then and now, were you not there when I fed another 4,000 people? And do you not remember that at the end of that feeding, you actually picked up basketfuls of leftovers? Are your hearts so hard? Do you have so little faith? Is the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees, the deadly disease of unbelief, has it penetrated your heart that you cannot see yet? The disciples. And he might have added into that story, and then right after that, I came walking on the water. You don't remember that? So it's a really simple story. Jesus fed 5,000 people. I am the bread of the life. And as I was studying this week, where the Spirit of God seemed to be leading me in this text is that I think that in the day that we live in, that the second half of this chapter preaches easier than the first half. That's kind of where I landed this week. And because you're listening, you get to go along for the ride. I think in our day, I think in our context, I think in the West, with peace and prosperity, one of the most blessed placed on the planet, and I think also in our church context, in our Christian context, but specifically in our own local church context where week after week after week we put the gospel in front of you. Where week after week we remind ourselves there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. Every week, it's in the songs, it's in the sermon, it's in the conversation. You need to get this clear. You cannot save yourself. Every week, we talk about this. It is the gospel. That you have to come to a point of emptiness, of brokenness, of powerlessness, of hunger, spiritual hunger. 
And when finally you are empty, 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 when you finally realize that you are spiritually bankrupt, then you're in the position to receive the good news of the gospel. Because in that moment, God says, Jesus did it all. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus satisfies. And so for our salvation, we have to rely upon him and him alone. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Again and again and again, week after week after week, we preach the gospel. He is the bread of life. He is the light. He is the gate. He is the shepherd. He is the resurrection. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the true vine. Have you heard this before? And we go, got it. Got it. Understood, I can't save myself. Jesus is my spiritual supply. But in every other area of our life, I wonder if we too easily forget that Jesus is also our supply in every area of life. So here's my question as we finish this thing out. Are we trusting the Lord for eternal bread, but trusting ourselves for daily bread? So very practically and fundamentally and basically this, when the cupboards are full of food, it's harder to remember that Jesus is our daily bread, right? When the bank account has a little bit extra money at the end of the month, it's easier to forget that Jesus is our supply. And all the way through the Bible, from cover to cover, you have these sober warnings of the dangers of being full. Literally that word, of being full. There's dozens of texts like this, and we don't have time, but I want to do a deep dive into just one story, take you back to the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, remind you of the children of Israel who are now standing on the edge of the promised land, and they're recounting what they've just come through, 40 years wandering in the desert and watching God in those 40 years being faithful to them that God was their supply, that every day there was manna, there was bread, there was water in the desert. They ate and they drank for 40 years. We're told their clothes didn't wear out. There were no holes in their shoes. And now they're on the edge of the land. They're headed into abundance. They're headed into a place that they have been told flows with milk and honey. Woo! Yub it. Deuteronomy 6, to parents and grandparents, make sure you teach your kids because they've not seen what you have seen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might and strength and on these words you will command shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. All the spiritual truths that you know as adults of who God is and what he has done, all the memories of his faithfulness, how he carried you, that he's true and faithful. But then the text goes on, and it gets incredibly practical. And he goes, when the Lord God brings you into the land with great and good cities you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and when you eat and look at that phrase and when you are full, take care lest you forget the Lord. And two chapters later, Moses drills down even deeper with more passion. And he's talking about their days in the desert. And he says, in that desert, he humbled you. In the desert, you were a humble people. You had no choice but to be a humble people. 
He let you hunger and he fed you with manna that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You need bread. You ask the Lord to speak it into existence. The Lord provided manna by the word of his mouth. Deuteronomy 8 goes on, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water and fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity. Insert Canada. Right? Where you have bread without scarcity. We grow more wheat than we can possibly eat. We ship it around the world. There's so much bread available in Canada. In which you will lack nothing, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good that he has given you. Take care. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God, lest when you have eaten and are full, And to build good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. And then one more phrase. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You should remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. In other words, you think you're so smart? Who gave you that brain? You think you're so strong? Who gave you those muscles? You think you're so creative? Who created you? You wouldn't earn a dime unless God enabled you to earn a dime. And so we see this principle that when they're wandering in the desert, they had no choice but to rely upon the Lord. But in the land of plenty, they could easily forget that every good gift comes from the Lord. And so, friends, there are two kinds of testing. There is the testing of want, and there is the testing of abundance. There is the testing of sickness and poverty and unemployment, what we might call lack or want. And there is the testing of health and prosperity and advancement and plenty, abundance. And frankly, friends, I believe the second test is harder. I really believe it's harder, and I actually believe it's a big reason why the church in the West is in decline. In Europe, in North America, in Australia, and New Zealand, the three major continents of the West, the church is in decline. See, if we use the language of Deuteronomy 6 and 8, it would be like this. When you get into the land of milk and honey, so when you arrive in the Fraser Valley... When you win the lottery of humanity that you just happen to be born into a family of Christian heritage and born into the West, just by luck of the draw. When you look across the global economy and you realize that Canada, for all her faults, is still a pretty blessed place. When you go home and you remember, oh, the deep freeze is full and the cupboards are stocked and you know what, I've got some other clothes in the closet and there's a little bit of money in the bank. Take care. Take care. Take care. Take care. Don't forget. Don't forget. Don't forget. Because in a crazy sort of way, like really a crazy sort of way, we can trust him for our salvation. We can trust him for eternity. 
We can trust him for 10,000 upon 10,000 years. And these little 80 years of here on earth, we think we got to trust ourselves. So back in the winter of 1990, and I might have told the story before, but you will have forgotten. Those of you who work in construction might remember that year, that it was one of those unusual years. We had a deep freeze in the Fraser Valley. We were living in Chilliwack, and I was placing concrete for a living, just little small jobs, driveways and sidewalks and shop floors and basements, one-day jobs, in and out, work just a few days ahead, a week ahead maybe, me and a couple college guys. And on December 6th of 1990, the temperature dropped to 10 below zero. You don't do outdoor concrete work below zero. You don't pour on top of frozen ground. And it did not come back above zero until the end of January. Six plus weeks with no work. We had three little children, a newborn. All three of them were under age three. Christmas is coming. January rent was coming. And we literally were living in our early 20s. We were living not just from paycheck to paycheck. We were living job to job to job day to day to day. And I remember well, it is emblazoned on my mind when Carolyn came down and said we're out of toothpaste. And I remember hanging my head into my hands and tears in my eyes because I knew we did not have money for toothpaste. And I can tell you that over those six weeks of that cold snap that we saw the Lord as our Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord who provides one of his names, that we would go to the door and there was no knock, there was no doorbell, and we opened the door and there's a pile of groceries. Carolyn has a picture of a cupboard that is full of groceries that we did not buy. A landlord who phones and says, by the way, an anonymous person has told me they've paid your rent for January, so Merry Christmas. An envelope under the front door with some cash in it with a note that said, this is not to pay any bills. Please buy your family some Christmas gifts. In those six weeks, we saw Jehovah Jireh as our provider in a way that we had never seen before. And I wouldn't change those lessons we learned for anything in the rest of our married life. So fast forward to today, and our circumstances are a little bit different. I've got a better job. I work indoors. And as long as the elders say so, I get a paycheck every month. And our cupboards are stocked, and our deep freeze is actually pretty full too. And yet I know that the Lord still wants us to know him as Jehovah Jireh. He wants us to know that it all comes from his hand. And Jesus told us to pray for daily bread. Why did Jesus say pray for daily bread when we got lots of bread? Because he wants to remind us it all comes from him. And so there are two calls to obedience in this text. And the first is the most important, that Jesus is the bread of life. Come to me for salvation. Next week's text. But secondly, is that Jesus is the provider for our daily bread. And some of you here this weekend may be in a time of need right now. And it may be for bread, food, money. You might be worried about the economy. You're hearing the word recession. Interest rates have gone up. Your mortgage has changed. You might be underemployed and feeling insecure. And you need to know that God has promised to care for you and give us all that we need. That you can trust him. You can give him your life. And he will fill in the gaps. Jesus said this, therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly father knows you need them. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added. Your father knows that you need them. Many of us are enjoying times of abundance and our need might be greater. Because the danger is that we'll forget and we think we're doing pretty good on our own. 
And we need that daily reminder that our daily bread comes from Jesus. I think it's significant that Jesus said he was testing Philip. Where are we going to get food for all these? And it says specifically, he said this to test Philip. Do you get it? I'm your source. You can trust me. He wanted to see Philip's faith. Now, if we flip that story around, did you know that there is only one place in the scriptures where we're told we can test the Lord? Jesus was testing Philip. We're told, don't put the Lord your God to the test. However, in one place, we are told, put the Lord to the test. And it has to do with our finances. It has to do with our generosity. It has to do with being faithful to him. Will you trust me in honoring me with the first and the best of all your income? Because to give away some of your income makes us insecure. And you're like, yeah, but do you trust me that I'm going to provide? It's why giving is a test and a trust. When I give away a portion, it's like, wait a minute, I could do a lot of good stuff with that. And the Lord goes, I know, but there's more where that came from. Don't think that I can't outgive. Will you trust me in honoring me? I'm able to open the storehouses of heaven. And you might say, well, how would I know if I'm relying upon God or on myself? Well, we don't have time for this. It's a whole sermon series unto unto itself. But do a word study through the scriptures and study these categories of work and save and, and give and spend and debt. All five, that's a five-week sermon series right there. Maybe we'll come to that one day. If you would study what the Bible has to say about all those things. So do we have a part? Do we just sit back? Do we just play video games in our parents' basement now because the Lord will provide? No. You study the scriptures. Did you know that Adam had a job? He went to work before sin entered the world. Genesis 1 and 2. Adam got a job before he got a wife. And he got a job before sin entered the world. So work is part of God's original design. It's a good gift unto us. We need to have a strong theology of Christian work. What does it look like to be a great employee? Did you know that 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians 3, one of them says, if anybody won't work, they shouldn't eat? (laughs) Love that one. Tell your teenage kid that. You don't work, you don't eat. Secondly, what does the Bible have to say about giving? Well, did you know the Bible says more about money than any other subject except God himself? We better study it. It's important. What about saving? What about spending? A lot of the problems that we're in is because of those last two categories. If we'd figure out the first three categories, the working and the giving and the saving, I think the spending and the debt issues would take care of themselves. And I've met so many people over the years, and I'll just give you an example. We take a special offering for maybe a church plant or something. And people say, oh, dang, I'd like to give to that church plant in Newfoundland, but I got so much debt, I can't. So we got to deal with these things. How would you know you're trusting God to supply or you're trusting yourself? Do a deep dive into those words. Because the truth is, the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's an Old Testament text, but it's requoted in Hebrews 13. And it's interesting because in Hebrews 13, the verse just before I will never leave you and forsake you literally says, keep your life free from the love of money, which is so funny. What a connection. Because the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So don't love money. You don't need to have money worries because the Lord is the one who will not leave you. He has promised to provide and to be our living bread. So John 6 raises a couple questions. Are we trusting him to be our eternal bread, but trusting ourselves for our daily bread? So I just leave you with this thought. When the cupboards are empty, or when the cupboards are full, God is good. 
He can be trusted, and he will supply all your needs. Take it to the bank. Uh, why don't you stand with me? I want to pray. We'll sing a song. We'll be out of here. Lord Jesus, uh, you know the needs in our congregation, and you do know, Father, the people right now who are in a time of lack, a time of want, where there are some financial and physical, maybe sickness and healing and all those questions that are going on in their minds right now, and they need you to show up in a very specific way and provide for them to be their source of living bread and comfort, but also their source of practical daily needs. And so, Lord God, we pray that even this week, if there are people in that situation, that literally, Lord, you would show yourself powerful to them, that you would open the heavens over their life, that you would meet the needs that need to be met in a miraculous way so that they would know that it came from the hand of God. But, Father, the truth is, for the majority of us, we're not living in want right now. In fact, we probably have more than what we need. And the hardest thing for us is that we don't forget that we keep it in front of us, Lord, our source is always you. Every penny, every dollar, every investment, everything we earn, everything we give, everything we save, it ultimately is flowing through your hands to us, Lord. You are our bread. We bless you, Lord. We bless you. We thank you. You are so good. You are so gracious. You are so abundant. You have given us more than what we need. You have given us far beyond what we can ask and imagine. You are such a generous God. Lord, we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.